is so glad to see you. Such a great morning to worship together. If you're here visiting with us, so glad that you're here. My name's Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Airline. And so if you're interested, we have a connection card. We'd love to connect with you. We have a gift out in the foyer. We'd love to share that with you after worship. I'm so glad that you're here. So excited to worship together. Just on a personal note, Whitney and I just want to share our appreciation for you. Thank you for last Sunday and just kind of the housewarming shower and um, just just showering us with with just love and appreciation. Can't tell you how much that meant to us. Um, and so we we know that y'all love us and want you to know as well how much we love and appreciate you, church. Y'all mean the world to us. And so as we think about worship today. We're going to be talking about the fall, and so a rather serious subject, and just kind of this passage has been on my heart this week, just kind of thinking and praying through the message. It's a familiar text from Ephesians 2. It says this, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. As we worship today, we worship the God who saw us in our sin, saw us in everything that said he should not love us, should not care for us, saw us in everything that said we should be placed outside the door, but yet he loved us anyway. Let's worship that king today. Let's pray. Father God, we give you this time that even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, you loved us. And you have taken us and you have seated us with you. So God, help us to worship you. Give you every ounce of praise that you are due. And God, we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's work.
Savior displayed on a criminal's cross. And darkness rejoices though heaven had lost. But then Jesus arose with the freedom and
Jesus, we thank you so much that you are a living hope. He forever reign. Lord Jesus, the death was arrested. We can sing and proclaim and stand here and scream these truths out today. God, as we go into this message, Lord, it's simple. Have your way. Do what only you can do here in this place. So, Lord, we love you and we praise you. Amen. Well, good morning, and so thank you so much, Quez and the team, for leading us in worship today. I invite you to turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. And so as we're continuing along in the series, we've initially just asked the question, what is 
the gospel, and we started last week trying to answer that question because the gospel is the foundation of our faith, but it is not just the foundation of our faith, it's where we live, that the gospel is not something we grow out of or grow past. And so we define the gospel simply as good news. But the gospel is really the entire scripture, as we talked about last week, that it is from Genesis to Revelation, that all of it is the gospel. It is this unfolding meta-narrative of creation, fall, redemption, consummation, that this is the gospel. So last week we looked at creation. We saw a few key ideas that God is the creator and we are his creation. So what does that mean? We are not God. God is God, and we are not. We saw that we are accountable to him. As God's creation, we are accountable to our creator. But not only that, we saw that there is goodness in God's created order. Now, as I preached through that last week, you probably sat back and looked at your own experience. You go, okay, Pastor Zach, you were talking about there's goodness in God's created order. Well, how do you explain all of the brokenness that we see in creation? There's a lot of brokenness. Like we just look around the world and we see things are messed up. There's Wars, there's widows, there's orphans, there's all of this stuff that we look and we go, this can't be part of God's good created order. I mean, just think about it. There's brokenness in the world. On a less serious note, there's brokenness in the world that people actually think it's a good idea to be a fan of the University of Florida. There's brokenness, man. People that think it's a, let's hit a little closer at home, it's a good idea to be a fan of the Georgia Institute of Technology. There's brokenness in the world. There's brokenness in the world that there are people that think Ford is better than Chevy. There's brokenness, man. I touched a nerve right there. Here we go. There, there is brokenness in the world when people think a sandwich should have tomato and mayonnaise on it. I drove over that in the bus last week, and I just figured I'd put it in reverse and back back over it again this week because the response I got was just weird. Yes, or Sunday afternoon after church, after I made those comments about tomatoes and mayonnaise, I started getting pictures of tomatoes and mayonnaise texted to me. I show up in my office Monday morning and someone had already beat me to the office and on my desk was a jar of Duke's mayonnaise and a tomato. <laughs> so I figured I would back back over that one while I was here. There's brokenness, right? Like that has to be evidence of the fall that someone would like a tomato and mayonnaise sandwich. But we look around and we see brokenness. 
Like we, we see God's creation as he's going through and he speaks and things simply come to existence. And he said, this is good, this is good, this is good. But then we look outside the window to the world around us and we can't seriously begin to go, this is what God meant by good? Like surely God's not looking at all this going, this is good. So what caused that? The answer is the fall, what we see in Genesis 3. And so before we begin, let's just open up in a word of prayer, shall we? Father God, we come to you, and God, we give you this time. God, would you speak to us today? God, let us hear from you and your word. And God, will give you all the praise, honor, and glory. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So Genesis 3, we're going to be looking for verses 1 through 21. And really two main movements in the text. First, we see that man sins. Man sins. So beginning in verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And so we're just kind of introduced to the serpent it says, he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So here is this serpent. Now we know, understanding, looking at the full text of Scripture, that this is Satan speaking through this little snake. So it says it describes him as crafty coming about and looks at the woman and he asks the woman this question, did God actually say? Did, did God really say this? Did God really speak about this? Notice the first thing that he does is he begins to cast doubt on what God has actually spoken. When we think about temptation that arises even in our own lives, it oftentimes begins with that small little seed of a doubt. Has God actually spoken? Has God actually said this? So he, he asked this question, has God actually, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And we're going to see in just a moment that this is not at all what God has said, but he casts doubt by saying, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And if we were to go back and look, and we will in just a moment, when God actually give this, gives this command, he actually says, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. God wasn't just, God didn't narrow it down and say, you can't have any of these trees. You may eat of every tree. You may, the ESV translates it this way, that you may surely eat or freely eat of every tree. God didn't tell them they couldn't eat of any tree, but that they may freely eat. But there was simply one tree that they could not eat. It says, and the woman said to the serpent, can we just pause here for just a minute? 
One of the things that's difficult about this and when we think about temptation in our own lives is that it oftentimes begins with just simply entertainment. That what does Eve do? She simply entertains the conversation. Instead of going, you're, you're, you're making me doubt what God has said, go somewhere else. What does she do? She engages and she entertains the temptation. How much temptation in our lives would be alleviated if we simply step back when the temptation to even entertain it began to step in? So Eve engages and she actually entertains the tempter. So it says, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the, in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. And we're going to look at this, but can I just say just in passing, really what she does is she tries to defend God to the serpent. Did God actually say, yes, God said this. Can I say this? God does not need our defense. He's a big God. I love the old Spurgeon quote. Said God's like a lion in a cage. You don't have to defend a lion in a cage. You just simply open up the door, he'll defend himself. She's trying to defend God here. Well, God actually said this. But notice there's some error in her response. It says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. Notice, I think we have it side by side here in the next slide. So on the left is Genesis 3. On the right is Genesis 2 where God actually gives the command. And so notice the exact language that God gives. It says, and the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. You may surely, you may freely eat of every tree in the garden. What is Eve's response? We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden the garden. But then, but God said. Notice this, we talked about it last week. That capital L-O-R-D, it's this intimate personal name with God. It's, it, it, it's, it's the correct version of referring to Yahweh, that they didn't want to actually write Yahweh out in the text because it seemed sacrilegious to even write it. So they would just write what's known as the tetragrammaton, the Y-H-W-H. And it's translated in English versions as Lord capital letters. And so what does Satan do when he first steps on the scene? Did God say? He doesn't call him Lord God. He doesn't use that personal, intimate name of God. And Eve falls for it hook, line, and sinker. But God said, 
that not only does Satan come in and, and tempt us in our lives, one of the things that he does, not only does he try to cast doubt on what God has said, he seeks to cast doubt on that personal intimacy with God. Like surely God is not that close that he would notice this temptation. Has God said? Then she continues, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. Is there a phrase that Eve adds in here that's not present in what God originally said? Yes, Eve adds in, shouldn't touch it. That's not part of God's original command. And so we, we don't know what the context is or why Eve adds this in to this discussion because Eve was not there when God originally gave the command to not partake of the fruit. It's just Adam in Genesis 2. Eve comes after the command has already been given. And so maybe Adam was the one who relayed to Eve, okay, you're not to eat it, and just as a, as a precaution, don't even touch it. But that wasn't actually what God had said. And just parenthetically, church, there is nothing wrong with having guardrails in one's life. Guardrails are good. But we cannot make the mistake of believing guardrails are God's word. So you may have guardrails up in your life that you know, okay, if I go hang out with this particular group of people and we go to this particular location, we're not going to make wise decisions. And so what's the guardrail? Well, okay, I'm not gonna hang out with that particular group in that particular location. That's the guardrail. Or whatever the temptation may be, you may have guardrails that are up, but we cannot mistake them for God's word. So your guardrails are your guardrails, my guardrails are my guardrails, but here's what I can't do. I can't look at you and impose the same guardrails that I have. Why? Because those are my guardrails. They may not be your guardrails. And so when Satan begins to attack and say, did God actually say if we've replaced God's word with guardrails, we'll quickly realize God didn't actually say that. But when we saturate ourselves in God's word, we can begin to sense when we're being lied to about what God has actually said. Not just my own personal opinions about things. Not just my own personal guardrails. So she says we should not touch it lest we die. And so she then, or the scripture continues. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. So not only does Satan cast doubt, he deceives. He says, you're, you're not going to die. God's not telling the truth here. 
Why? For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You're not going to die. This temptation's not, succumbing to this temptation's not going to kill you. And here's really what's happening, Eve. God's trying to hold you back from this. God doesn't want you engaging in this because you're going to be like God if you engage in it. And God doesn't really want you to do that. How often do we struggle with temptation? And it begins to creep in by the fundamental belief that God is holding us back from something. That God doesn't really want us to have that. God's holding me back. That's exactly what's happening to Eve here. The temptation is beginning to creep in under the belief that God's withholding something good from my life. Did God actually say? No, God didn't actually say. God knows if you do this, you'll be like him. He's withholding something good. In verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. We see not only does she succumb to entertaining it, she succumbs to enticement. That she finally takes a long look at this fruit and saw that it was good for food. There was physical nourishment that could come from it. And there was delight to the eyes. It was aesthetic. It looked pleasing. And that there was a product that would come that would make one wise. And in all of this enticement, she finally succumbs to it. And she takes the fruit and eats. She's enticed began by just simply entertaining the temptation. And hear me, church, after a while, entertaining the temptation will eventually lead to enticement to engage in it, which is exactly what she does. So, but not only do we see entertainment and enticement, we see enablement. And she also gave some to her husband. Notice this, who was with her and he ate. Nowhere in this conversation does Adam ever step up and say anything. Nowhere throughout this entire scene is Adam going, hold, hold on, honey, time out. This temptation's creeping in, but we know what God has said. We know that God's creation is good. We know this. Adam is just simply along for the ride. He enables it, but not only does he enable it, he engages in it. Who was with her, and he does what? Eats. 
He enables what's going on, but also he engages and participates in it. It says, and he ate it. It says, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Notice the very first thing that comes about from man's sin is shame. They knew immediately they had done wrong. Their eyes were opened. And what do they immediately begin to do to clothe and to cover their shame? If we're honest, we do the same thing. Instead of just being outright and open with God, how often do we try to cover that shame ourselves? How often do we try to cover that guilt ourselves? Instead of running to the Father, we cover ourselves. As though our own little loincloths can actually cover that shame can actually cover that guilt. So we see that man sins and shame enters into the world. But then starting at verse number eight, we see that God speaks. It says, when they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day, and his man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. So evidently in this text, it was commonplace for God to just go walking through the garden. That up to this point, there's been no sin that has entered in, and Adam and Eve were able to freely enjoy the relationship that they had with God the Father. But now something's different. They begin to hear God walking through the garden, what would have been normal and commonplace in this relationship that was vibrant. All of a sudden, they feel the need to go hide themselves from God. It says, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? It's got to be one of my favorite questions in the scripture. God, we, hid, we were naked, so we hid ourselves from you. How do you know what naked is? Like, I, I, I created you this way. Like, I've, I've formed you. But how do you know that? Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Notice that one of the impacts of sin is not only shame, but we like to deflect. 
Did you take and eat from the tree? Um, well, you see, God, the, the, that good gift you, that you gave to me, she gave it to me. And I, God, you remember you gave me the woman, you, you remember that, that time, that good gift you gave to me? Well, she gave it to me and I ate. Notice, Adam does not take ownership over his own sin, but in essence, tries to deflect his own sin back to God. You know, God, you gave me this gift. She's the one that took it and gave it to me, and I ate. It says, then the Lord said, the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Again, she deflects. Except this time she doesn't cast her deflection back to God, but to the serpent. The serpent gave it to me. He deceived me and I ate. Here's the point I want us to draw home. Every sin in our lives, we are accountable for. We cannot deflect onto somebody else. We cannot deflect onto something else. Listen, you may be sitting here and, and you, you're coming from a situation, a broken home, a lot of trauma in your life growing up. Those are still your sins. You still have things that you are accountable for. Not things that we can simply deflect onto someone or something else. Because here's where the gospel becomes beautiful. And we're going to talk about redemption next week, but I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Is that I have to take ownership over my sin. If, I, if I'm going to come to know Jesus, if I'm going to walk closely with Jesus... I have to take ownership of that and lay those things down at his feet. You see, if I'm going to trust Christ as my own Lord and Savior, I have to trust that he came and died for my sin. Not the sin of somebody else that I blame that he came and died for my sin. So I don't deflect it. I don't put it off on somebody else. This is my sin. And so then we move. So God has interacted with them after they have fallen. But then God speaks a word. And it says, the Lord God said to the serpent. So we move from serpent to woman to Adam. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. What is God saying to the serpent that he will humiliate him? You're going to go about on your belly. You're going to eat dust. So God is going to humiliate the serpent. But not only that, notice this promise, I will put enmity between you and the woman 
and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To Satan, you may have crept in, but understand the day will come that from this woman is going to come a line. And somewhere down the line, there's going to be the one to come who is going to crush your head. You may bruise his heel, but that's not the final say that he's the one that's going to come and will crush you under his feet. The God offers this promise that the Messiah would come. And so really, what do we see throughout the rest of the Old Testament? We see this outworking. And so you're probably, if you ever get to like First and Second Chronicles, you're wondering what on earth is going on. That the rest of this Old Testament is this outworking, looking forward to the Messiah that would come. So this line says, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Now notice, <laughs> notice this. The promise is given that one would come from the offspring, right? That one would come about through the line. So what does God immediately say to the woman? It's going to be painful. It's not going to be easy. That this Messiah that would come would come through the pain of childbirth. And not only that, he says, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. That one of the impacts of the fall is this tension between husband and wife now. Some of you may have experienced that reality of the fall on the way to church this morning. It's a joke. You'll get that later. That's no longer peaceful and in harmony, but that there is tension between the husband and the wife. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the, eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. What does God tell Adam that work is going to be difficult. It's going to be hard. But not only that, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. But not only is work going to be hard, what does he get at the end of all of his labors? Death. you're going to return to the dust. But up to this point, there's been no death. Everything's been perfection. There's been nothing but life in the garden. And now all of a sudden, because of their sin, because of their succumbing to this temptation, death has now entered in. 
says, okay, you're going to return to the dust. Verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. You may be sitting here going, Pastor Zach, today's message is a bummer. And it is. It's a hard message. And just as we talked about last week, in order to understand the good news of the gospel, we have to first understand the bad news. In order to understand why the death of Christ is so significant and what he accomplishes on the cross, we have to first understand why that was necessary. And the fall is the reason that was necessary. But we do have this little glimmer of hope that God gives the promise that the Messiah was to come. But notice, before God kicks them out of Eden, what does he do? He clothes them. That out of his love for them, God would have been perfectly within his holiness and his righteousness just to go, okay, take your little fig leaf loincloths and you go find something. But no, what does he do? He clothes them. That even then he had not forgotten about them. Even then he had not just kind of, well, he kicks them out, but he prepares them in advance. But this is who God is. That yes, is God have wrath and justice and all of those things? Yes. And God exercises his wrath and justice by kicking them out of the garden. We also see his grace and his mercy by simply going, let me clothe you before you go. Let me provide for you before you go. And so this brings us this morning to our central idea. It's really simple. Adam's sin led to brokenness. Man to man, man to creation, and man to God. Adam's sin led to brokenness, man to man, man to creation, and man to God. I'll explain a little bit more about this as the band comes back to the stage. As I did last week, I want to give us just a few key points of application as we close that we see from this narrative and what we learn from the fall. First and foremost, we see that God is serious about sin. God is serious about sin. God does not take sin lightly. It's important for us to actually define what sin is. That we like to try to kind of press it down and, and, and flatten out sin. That's, yes, sin is what hurts, can hurt me, sin can hurt others. And those things are true. But first and foremost, sin is high treason against the holy God. 
that that's what happens in the garden. What did Adam and Eve do? They engaged in high treason against the holy God. And God is serious about it. God doesn't just simply sweep it under the rug and move on. He's serious about sin. Number two, sin breaks all areas of our lives. Sin breaks all areas of our lives. Just as I said, the central idea from man to man that our, our relationships with one another is broken because of sin. Husband and wife is broken because of sin. Parent to child is broken because of sin. Employer, employee is broken because of sin. It impacts all areas of our lives. Man to creation. All of a sudden, creation becomes difficult. There's a reason you have to cut your grass every couple weeks. The fall. There won't be lawnmowers in heaven, I don't think. All of a sudden, creation becomes difficult and toilsome. Man's relationship to creation is broken, but then most importantly, man's relationship to God is broken. That because of the sin in our lives, that relationship is broken. But then third, our lives begin in spiritual death and end in physical death. Because of the sin in the garden, we are born, and Scripture talks about this, spiritually dead. Like, we, we know this, right? Any of us that have ever raised kids recognize this. Like, there's some vipers in a diaper. Like, I don't have to tell Sophia, listen, here's what I want you to do. You see that kid over there playing with that toy? I want you to run up, punch them, bite them, and grab the toy. She doesn't have to be taught that. No, you, you must share. That has to be taught. Why? Because in Adam we are born spiritually Also, because of the fall, we all physically die. So on the front end of life, we have spiritual death. On the back end of life, we have physical death. All because of the fall. Now here's what's great about the gospel. It's that because of the work of Christ, we are able to bring, come from spiritual death to spiritual life. Because of the work of Christ, we move from spiritual death to spiritual life, but not only that, physical death is not the end because of Christ. Which brings us to our fourth point of application, our last point. God promises not to leave us there. That even for Adam and Eve, 
as he looks at the serpent, says, you've caused this, I'm going to curse you, but you have to understand there is one coming that's going to crush your head. God promises to not leave us there. And we fast forward throughout the history of scripture and what happens, a Messiah is born the backwater town of Bethlehem, of all places. And what does he do? All of that sin, all of that death, all of that wrath that was rightly due to you and I, he takes that upon himself. going back to Genesis 3, God was not scrambling. God was not taken off guard. God knew exactly what he was going to do. God knew exactly what he was going to accomplish. So what is this spin off the greatest rescue mission that's ever been known? As the Son of God steps into human history to fulfill a promise all the way back in Genesis 3. So before we get to the good news, we have to understand the bad news. And the good news is this, just as we read from Ephesians 2, that you may be sitting here today and you go, Pastor Zach, I, as you were reading that, I, I am dead in my trespasses. And Pastor Zach, I am spiritually dead. I want to come to know Christ. I want to encourage you to come find me, come find Pastor Clint, come talk to us after church. Or during this time of response, we'd love to share with you. Or maybe you're sitting here today and you're following after Christ, but you're struggling in particular areas in your life. Maybe today's the day you just come and you lay those things down at the foot of Jesus. You lay those sins at his feet and trust his grace and his mercy. So I'm gonna close us in prayer. If you wanna come pray, this altar's open. I'll be standing over here. Pastor Clint will be standing over here. But respond to whatever God is calling you to do today. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. We praise you. God, I know that as we read through Genesis 3, it's a hard text to read. Because it meets us right where we are. And we understand, apart from Christ, we are spiritually broken. But in Christ, we can be made spiritually whole. So God, help us not just to reflect on the depth of our sin, but God, also the depth of your grace to meet us in that depth of sin. God, we love you. We praise you. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand as we respond today.
Thank you so much for being here today. Uh, just a couple, couple quick announcements. Uh, and so, as you can see in your bulletin, got a few things coming up. And so, this coming Wednesday night, we're going to be at Wilshire Park again for our Wednesday night connect. I just want to thank everybody that came out this past Wednesday. We had a fantastic time. Thank you for Nelson's class for taking the lead um, and, and putting everything together. We had a great time. Got to meet and spend a lot of time with a lot of different folks. And so, thank you so much for being here this Wednesday over at Wilshire Park. Um, and so, encourage you if you're interested, let, let me know, let Mike know, have a conversation with us. Um, and as we work through those details. Then as well, you can see coming up July 22nd, if you're interested in bringing a baked good, um, talk to Joanna. Mike, what's the, what's the times on that? Eight o'clock. All right, so baked goods, if you can bring them out even Friday afternoon before that um, Christmas in July. All right, last thing before we dismiss, um, just one thing I just want to share with you, church. Next Sunday is going to look a little bit different. We have some exciting announcements coming up, and so I encourage you to be back Wednesday as we look ahead towards the fall. You can see we've got a lot of things coming up, community block party, all of that stuff. We're also going to be shifting around some life groups and kind of talking a little bit more about what Wednesday nights are going to look like. So just encourage you to be back next week as we talk about that. It's an important announcement. But then as well, Next Sunday, just so you're not taken off guard, one of the things that we're going to bring back into worship is taking up an offering as a church. All right, and so here's the reason why. We don't give so that we can pay light bills and pay salaries. That's not why we give. We give first and foremost because it is an act of worship. That's why we give. And so one of the things, just, just to be transparent with you, that God kind of just convicted my heart about was we as a church talk about we want to be a church of vibrant worship, and I'm withholding an opportunity for us to worship together by doing that, okay? And so that's one of the things we're going to incorporate back next Sunday, and so just didn't want you to be caught off guard. You can still give any way you want to in the boxes, online, through your phone, however you want to do that, but just so you weren't caught off guard next week as all of a sudden plates full of cash started going around the room. Um, and so that'll be next Sunday. So we give because it's an act of worship, but then as well we give because the mission why we exist. We give to make disciples. That's why we give. We give so that we as Airline Baptist Church will make a gospel impact on the community that God has placed us. That's why we give. Those are the two reasons, and there are no other reasons than that. That is worship and because of why we exist, to make a gospel impact. Amen? All right. Mike, will you close us out in prayer today? God, thank you so much for this wonderful day. God, thank you for the time we've had together in our classes today. Thank you, God, for the worship, for the singing, to hear the, the voices of your children lifted in praise and honor of your name. And, Lord, I thank you for the message today, realizing that the fall, God allowed you to do your greatest work, was to send your son, 
bring us salvation. Lord, we are so thankful. Where would we be? Lost and undone. Lost without hope. But God, you loved us so much. You sent your son to die for us. That through him we'd have life eternal. And know you, God, as our Lord and our Savior. Father, we thank you so much for this day. Now you be with us and you guide us through this week and everything that we do. God, looking forward to Wednesday night as we're out in the community and, and we're out talking and just sharing God's love with people. Lord, just bless us and help us to, to be that light. And Lord, bless this, your church, as we gather each week to glorify, to honor you and to praise you, God, and to spread your name, to make you famous in this area. We love you. Give you praise. Now use us as your will sees fit in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me tell you.